Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we delve into a different slice of wellness in hopes of nourishing ourselves. With the help of special guests and a little of our own irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of Wellness Pie. We're your hosts, Dina Searden. And I'm Rachel Paez. Thanks for joining us. Now grab a cup of tea, sit back and relax, and enjoy a piece of Wellness Pie. Welcome to today's Wellness Pie Shop. And in today's episode, we have with us Jenny Wynn. And Jenny, we like to kick things off with just a little bit of history about who you are and how you came to the space where you are today. Well, hi, thank you for having me. I, um, it's a very open-ended question, so it's hard to distinguish that. I, um, by trade, my field is an occupational therapist. Um, I currently work with the veteran population. However, I started out as a pediatric occupational therapist and I kind of just evolved from there. Um, I'm born and raised most of the time in California, originally from Northern California. Um, I was born in Monterey, lived there all through like elementary school. And then um, middle school and high school, I moved to Salinas, which is a very different demographic and <laughs> different <laughs> environment altogether. And then for college, I came down to San Diego and I went to undergrad at uh, UC San Diego, stayed here for a few years and then decided, you know, I don't want to say that I've only ever lived in California. So I applied to grad school in Texas, uh, lived there for a few years and then came right back. <laughs> and came right back. <laughs> yeah. Um, it Well, it's hard because I went to school in El Paso, Texas. So if anyone mm. knows Texas, when I say El Paso, they're like, oh. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> my, my dad lives in Houston. Oh, in Houston. Um, mm. There is a large portion of, a uh, large population of Vietnamese people in Houston. Oh. So it's ironic, though, because uh, my parents decided to move to Texas after I left Texas. So I don't know why that worked or how that worked, but um, yeah, my, my whole family's all over the place now though. So you mentioned that you're, there's a large population of Vietnamese in Houston. So you're Vietnamese. Yes, I am. Um, both of my parents immigrated from Vietnam in the late seventies. They left um, Vietnam and their home and their family, everybody that they knew and they escaped as um, what's considered, I think they're called like the boat people, uh, refugees oh. to Hong Kong. And then they immigrated to the United States, um, I think like in 1979, 1980. Wow. And my brothers and I were all born here. Wow. wow. So you said you grew up in Monterey. What was that like being Vietnamese and your, you know, your first generation, your parents, yeah. do, they, do your parents speak English? Very um, not well now maybe yes I would say growing up not well I I uh, my brothers and I all learned Vietnamese first as our first language and um we had to we had to learn English like through school or tv friends the neighborhood Monterey is predominantly white um and so I I mean I didn't even know I was like quote-unquote Asian I didn't know I was different there wasn't anyone Asian there um there was one Japanese girl 
that's all I remember. Everyone else was white. Um, so I didn't really know that I was different until like things like what I would bring for lunch was very different than my classmates and my parents both worked, uh, you know, to feed all four of us. So we had like family members watching us or like aunt, close family friends um, watching us when we were growing up. And then um, we moved to Salinas, which is predominantly Hispanic. So I was never really around other Asians other than maybe like Filipinos um, until I moved to San Diego. So I think like I didn't realize that I what I was learning was very different until I compared it to other Asians when I met them. And then I realized like, oh, that's a I guess that is an Asian thing because my like white classmates never did that or never um, that wasn't like a rule for them. I mean, like I was never allowed to go to sleepovers when I was younger. Yeah, we like the extracurriculars that we chose were very like academically based. My parents are very traditional, um, very strict. That's all they knew. Um, So that's just how it was for us. I didn't know that there was, you know, like options for like summer camp and things like that. Like that never that wasn't I didn't even know that existed until it was too late. Oh, well, I never did a summer (laughs) camp either. So summer camp was grandma's. Um. <laughs> I went to summer camp. I was, a, I was one of those like Jewish girls that went to summer camp, went to sleep away camp for like, see, that sounds so weeks. fun yeah. to me. Cause I missed out on it. <laughs> you probably like, no. I didn't think it was that fun. I made it like two years and I was like, I don't like this. Oh, okay. I'm going to say, Oh, I'm, I'm really interested about kind of the conversation we're about to have here. Cause I think it's so cool to get the perspective of, right, you have immigrant parents who um, moved to an area that when you said Monterey, I was just like, how, like, how did that even happen? Um, And so I'm really curious to know your, your journey with this idea of values, because I know what, well, let me rephrase that, I can imagine the cultural values that were embedded in you at an early age, having immigrant pan- parents in a predominant, not even predominantly, like 95% yes. white area. Um, and if you could tell me a little bit about like what that journey has been like with separating yourself from maybe what your parents' values are or how you have the same values that they do. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, when people can migrate from like, I, I think just like Vietnam, in, at least in general, uh, a lot of the times were spot back then they were sponsored by, you know, Catholic Christian church people, and they would sponsor us to come. And so we had no, I mean, my parents are both um, children of nine. So they had no relatives here. They didn't know anybody. We had friends. Uh, they had friends in like San Jose, but no one in Monterey County. And so the people that sponsored us I think we're in Monterey County. And so that's how we ended up there. Mm. Um, and they kind of just built their lives in that area. And um, I guess, you know, talking about my values and how they were when I was growing up, it was very traditional um, Asian culture values, like respecting your elders, uh, family first, really I feel like it was really instilled upon us to work hard. That was like the thing, like we, my parents sacrificed a lot to get up to get to America to have their children have a better life. And they sacrificed, you know, their fam, their family, everything they knew, and they needed to work hard so that we could have a better life. And so in out of respect for our parents, our job was to also work hard, um, you know, work hard at your, 
you know, school, whatever it is that we were involved in. Um, and I think that was what was ingrained in us, like work hard to get to have a better life, essentially. And, um, and it was really about like respect. And I think what's hard is as first generation Asian American, we try to assimilate to the people around us and not necessarily just um, follow the culture that our parents came from. And so for me, that was really hard. Um, when I was younger, I was very, like I was an introvert. I didn't speak up very often. You know, you don't even, in that culture, you don't even like look at your elders in the eyes. It's kind of disrespectful. Your head's kind of like in a bow sense. Um, but in America, like if you don't have eye contact there, they think you have some sort of um, social disability and it's it's looked down on. It's I mean, if you don't speak up, if you're not independent, if you're not, you know, if you don't, yeah, it's just, it was very uh, contradicting, I guess. It was really confusing, at least for me um, growing up, because I also had brothers who uh, kind of ruled my everything that I did. I had no choice. I had no say in the matter. Like Are anything you the youngest? that I did. Yes. I have uh -huh. three older brothers. So um, a lot of what I did was, I mean, a lot of it was because like I wanted to be like them, right? I There's a little bit of an age gap between my brothers and I. And so I looked up to them. So I wanted to do everything they did. And um, then we kind of just learned like, you know, the things that uh, we valued in at home were a little bit different than our like classmates. Um, I guess like my standard for myself when I was in school was very strict. I, I mean, I learned that from my parents, like the stereotype of Asians, you know, only receiving A's is because it's disappointing to receive anything lower than that. Like you worked hard and you should work hard to be the best that you can, because we have more opportunity now than our parents had. Like that's mm -hmm. what is kind of instilled in you. And so, yeah, I was that, um, that stereotypical Asian where if like I came home with a B, I was like unhappy. My parents were super disappointed in me. I was very hard on myself. Um, and I like look back now and that's probably why I have this like perfectionist uh, issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's, it's really hard. Like I'm really hard. I'm probably my worst critic, maybe second to my dad, but um, it's, it's, it's hard living up to that. I don't even know the word I'm thinking of, but it's just very high standards because, uh, you know, they, they sacrificed a lot. And I think that's a value. I'm not sure if that's a value or just something that's instilled in us. Like you sacrifice for your family and you do everything for them. And that's just like a huge value as family, right? You, um, you respect your elders, you listen to them. And it's hard here because, you know, we get to an age where I feel like, Yes, I respect everything that my parents tell me, but there are some things that I am more knowledgeable about, but they don't hear what I'm trying to say in that aspect because I'm not the elder or mm. I'm not the male mm. in the family. Vietnamese culture is a very patriarchal society. And so what um, happens in that culture is they listen to the male in the family and not the female, which is really difficult for me because I have three brothers, <laughs> if you could imagine. I so. am... I'm really curious because I think what's so interesting about your situation and your life story is you have not only a mixture of cultural influences from your own home and where your parents come from, but you then also have the integration of cultural values from assimilating into a new 
you know, a new country. And one, like you mentioned, goes very against um, in those developmental years as a kid when you're there, right? Yes, we're kind of told to respect our elders, but kind of like you said, there's that rebellion that comes in. And so not only are you rebelling against your parents, but you're also rebelling against two different cultures that are influencing your values. And my, my point where I'm kind of coming from this is, what was that like for you as you were deciding, you know, it, it sounded like respect, right, is a big value, respecting your elders, respecting your family, respecting your community, and respecting the fact that your parents made sacrifices. What was it like for you when you had to start kind of choosing, you know, respecting your home culture or respecting your new home culture? What was that kind of conflict like for you? Um, it was definitely hard. I was trying to learn how to like my own identity. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I definitely had a lot of conflict with my dad in particular. I think my mom was a little bit more understanding um, of that. Like, you know, we, we, we moved here. We need to respect like the cultures and everything here versus just taking everything that we knew in Vietnam and bringing it here and then instilling that into our kids where that isn't the environment we live in anymore. And so I uh, butt heads a lot with my dad growing up in that sense. I was like, yes, I respect you, but this is how you're wrong. Essentially <laughs> that did not bode well at all. <laughs> um, even with like choosing a career, we had arguments over, um, it's very common for people of Asian descent to either become like a doctor or a lawyer or something just like well-known and established. Like if I even wanted to like consider liberal arts, that's just a huge no, right? And just throwing that out there. But I mean, I, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. That was like my plan from second grade. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So my dad was like, yeah, she's gonna be a neurosurgeon. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just went right for the top. Um, but then I realized like, at, towards my senior year of high school, I'm like, I don't think I want to be a doctor. Like they spend on average 12 minutes with a patient. Do I want to go to school for another 12 years? Like, is this something that I want to do where I won't even be able to build relationships with people? And that was, that was my goal. Like I loved working with people. Um, a current value of mine is like advocacy service to people. Mm. And that relate, I think that relates to like respecting, you know, your family and your, and, and that, but it's just on a higher level. I think like I want to provide for people and I think serving people is how I do that best. And so in talking to my dad about how I didn't want to be a doctor that I'm pretty sure he disowned me for like a year because he just couldn't comprehend the fact that I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, and I mean, I went on to be an occupational therapist. I love what I do. I think I'm I think I'm fairly good at it. And even now he still asks me, are you going to be a doctor? <laughs> no, I'm pretty established in my career. I, I mean, like I may or may not get my PhD, but the doctor you're thinking about is a medical doctor. And no, that is not the route I'm going. So like, even now we still have the same argument that I had two decades ago. Mm. Um, and so that's really hard. I feel like that battle will never be ever over. I feel like we're always going to fight about that. Mm. Um, and so that's hard. I think like I've had to learn to just accept and kind of like let go and forgive. Whereas he's still like holding on to that thought and 
I think that's hard for him. That can't be, I mean, that just has to be taxing on you emotionally and mentally. If you have these expectations of your child and they never get there, like how can you ever just be proud of them for what they have accomplished? What you just said was um, struck me. And that was that it's hard for him emotionally. And yet it sounds like that value of the, the drive, the need to be better than your parents to the value is like, um, I'm going to achieve to show respect. Mm-hmm. Right. Would that be a correct Definitely. interpretation? Yeah, okay. I think so. I mean, yeah, I, a lot of what I did was like, I just want to hear you say that I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. Like I'm doing this for you. Like, I, I mean, like, yeah, I'm doing it for myself, but I think growing up, you do it for your parents, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. you want to make them proud. I didn't know what an A meant. I mean, like, yeah, it means like I knew the subject, but I didn't know the value behind that. And I think it was because my parents were like, you need to get this A, you need to get A straight A's. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you do it to like respect them. Right. I, right. And what it sounds like is that that's more important than actually what you feel. So it's the status or the achievement over me. Yes. My, my identity. I, I agree 100%. I feel like I, I mean, at least in my family, and I feel like from what I've learned about from other Asian families is emotion, that side of it is not something that is talked about or even addressed. I mean, I've been called too emotional or weak because of my emotions from oh. my 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 father and um anything that's not happy is is a sign of weakness like when I'm when I was mm. mad Jenny you're weak stop showing emotions like I'm, holy cow we are emotional beings I and I think that was really hard for me growing up like I um, you know, there's like five core emotions, right? And so when you, now I know those things, but growing up, I was like, oh, I, if I'm not happy, this is not good. Right? And so I was like, I had shame and guilt into feeling sad or upset. And like something was I wrong mean, with you kind of thing. Yes. I, yeah, because I was told I was too emotional or I was told I was weak mm. because I had emotions. Um, and so that was really hard. And now like as an occupational therapist, I, I like tell my patients, like, you know, it's okay to have feelings, like feel <laughs> any sort of feelings, like it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to be okay. When people tell me like, oh, I'm just having an okay day. And I'm like, well, that's great. You know, like, it, it's okay to just have an okay day. I have people when I tell them I'm, I'm okay, they're like, Oh, well, what's wrong? Why are you just okay? Like something's wrong with just being okay. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's also interesting that what what I heard you say about not wanting to be a doctor was, you know, they spend on average 12 minutes with each patient and you're not building connections. You're not building a relationship with that person. And so to me, that sounds like you really value the emotional connection and that you get that in your current work. Would that be accurate? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I definitely feel like I pulled away from the medical model and wanted to do something different because I wanted, I'm not thinking, I'm wondering if it's like the emotional connection with other people, but just like the social aspect of Mm, connecting with other people. I think people are more than just like what I see of their bodies and labs and the outside aspect. I mean, that's why I became an occupational therapist. We look at people as a whole where like, when you learn the difference between what an occupational therapist does and what a physical therapist does, physical therapist looks at the physical body, right? Like the biomechanics, the physio, the physiological aspect of your body. Whereas the occupational therapist looks at the body as a whole, a holistic approach. We don't just look at you as a person on the outside. We look at you 
how you do cognitively, how your psychosocial well-being, you know, um, your mental health. And then we look at you in your environment. Everyone is different when they're at the hospital or when they're at home or when they're at their work setting. It's looking at the person as a whole. And I think in finding OT, I really found myself. I was able to learn more about just me and a person. And I guess the emotional side of that and the psychological side of that, I think I was really closed off on that before because it was never even approached growing up. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, so when you were a senior in high school, it's when you decided, no, medical school is not where I want to go. And is that the time you started pulling away from what your parents instilled in you in you as values? And I think so. What was that like? I mean, you said already that you and your dad fought a lot, but um, was it an internal struggle as well? You know, I, I feel like that's around the time, like my junior, senior year, when I started to identifying myself a little differently, like I didn't just see myself as this, you know, Vietnamese girl that came from Asian parents. I started to relate more to my classmates who weren't Asian. Um, and that was really hard. I think <laughs> my parents hated this, but I chose a college the furthest away that I could in the same state so that I could figure out what who I was um I'm from Monterey and I chose I mean I got into schools in Northern California but I chose San Diego I mean UCSD is a very top public school it's a great school but also I I think I needed distance to grow and learn and be independent and so when you went away to school the idea of your shifting values when you went away to college, what happened there? I I started as a human biology major. I still knew I liked science. I um, I was very unhappy. I hated what I was learning. I mm. was receiving mediocre grades. I was average, and I you know I, in high school I was like a big fish in a little pond, and then you move to college and you're like this little fish in this huge pond. And so I was average, and for me that was shocking. Like I wasn't this straight A student. ASB, you know, president doing everything, captain of tennis and all this stuff. I was involved in everything, right? I was an overachiever. And then I came to college and I just like felt so lost. I um, was getting really bad grades. I ended up changing my major and finding out that I wanted to work with kids with special needs. And I was so much happier. I uh, enjoyed what I was learning. And I, and I, I feel like my values shifted. They weren't um, necessarily oriented around my family. I, you know, like I did get a little homesick, but like I was realizing like what mattered to me as a person. And that was like shocking, I guess, um, just to learn who I was and what I was, was doing. It was, I mean, growing up as the youngest, I felt like I was really shadowed by my brothers and really um, influenced by what my parents wanted of me versus like what I wanted of myself. And I think like that took a long time to learn. And, um, but now I'm just like, you know, if I had accepted myself a long time ago, I feel like I would have been happier sooner, but like, at least I'm here now and things are working out great. And they're, what happened was meant to happen. And I have a a few things. Um, I think you're a really great example to just show the, the, the possibility of divide that come with values. Um, Using you and your dad as an example where in truth, you know, the value took priority over his child in, in a way, you know, is, is the value of respect, the value of hard work, being a doctor, that level came above that value came above your 
emotional well-being. And um, not that you're the first guest that we've had on this podcast that experienced it, but I think that it's it's just so prevalent in your story, um, this idea of how your family values really showed you that you were not going to be happy if you aligned with them. And so you chose this very different field. And I loved how you put it, the whole patient, this whole person, which from your story is not how you were seen. You were not a whole person. You were your grades, you were your school choices, you were your career choices. A lot of some of the similarities in the American culture that we kind of talk about the success. And yet you chose a career that is the complete opposite. You, the emotional capacity of your clients, the physical capacity of your clients, their well-being is how you determine how they're doing. And I just love that. I, I love that, that you made that jump and you kind of went over here. And like we're talking about in this conversation, you had this pivotal, this pivotal time being a te- being a college student, which we've talked about before. It's like, a, is you, you make that choice. You go far away so that you can explore and you can be, you know, involved in different things. Monterey and San Diego have some similarities, but also have some pretty drastic differences. And you mentioned that you kind of found your own values while you were in school. And you mentioned one, which I love, which is advocacy. And um, again, another thing I find interesting that you were a massive minority in your town and where you came from. And then here you are a value being advocacy and inclusivity and support for all. And um, I love that going together as well. And so I'm very interested to know what other values did you find on this journey of Jenny in college? Um, So it's interesting that you say that because I'm in this like leadership program thing right now. And they actually, one of the books that you read is a dare to lead by Brene Brown. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've read it, but she talks about values. And actually in that book, um, one of the exercises is you choose two values. And so in listening to the other podcast, I'm like, oh, people have listed like, five values that would be that's great I could have five but narrowing it down to two is so hard Mm -hmm. um and I think in connecting like thinking about what my values were growing up was like yeah respect was a huge thing for me I would say my number one value is like integrity and what Mm -hmm. comes with that and I I get that respect does come with you know integrity and all that but for me like I value honesty I value like you know, being ethical, following the right path and, and being honest about it. I think, and I I think emotions play a lot into whether or not you're honest. I think if you can't even accept that you are feeling angry, sad, shameful, you know, any of that, then how can you really be honest with yourself as a person? And I think Mm -hmm. in learning that I was having these emotions, I was honest with myself versus trying to battle with my family or my parents about who they wanted me to be versus like who I was meant to be. That is so, that's so poignant. I mean, it's absolutely true, isn't it? What's another value that you said you had two? So honesty and integrity, they're the two that you came up with? Um, so I combined honesty and integrity into okay. one. And then my other one was advocacy. advocacy. And of advocacy, okay. Those okay. were the two that I had designated for myself in that course. Yeah. If we give I mean- you five. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're open-ended here. <laughs> there are no limits. Oh, so I was thinking like, you know, it, growing up, family is always like number one priority. But for me, it's more than just family. It's it's like my loved one. It's my it's my network. Um, 
like, of, of course, I, I, you know, try and put my family first in a lot of aspects. Um, but it, it's, I've, you know, you grow to learn and love people outside of your family. And I've learned so much from like, you know, my best friends and my network of people. And I think that's, you know, where my healthy, emotional, like well-being comes from is from the people that I surround myself with. So your community, would that be? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. My community of people. I mean, one of my best friends, she's taught me a lot about like just accepting who I am and being okay with that. Like whether that's how I look on the outside, how I'm, you know, feel on the inside and just accepting that and then moving forward versus just like being stuck in one aspect and then focusing on the negative and those kind of things. I think that's what I unfortunately learned from my growing up, but now I feel like I've, you know, matured from there and can take my emotions and then learn from that or, you know, react how I need to. Well, I think something that you, your story um, really depicts is uh, how values mature as you develop into your own person. And you talked about it before, respect and integrity or respect and advocacy and um, respect and honesty. And I think it's really powerful to listen to how you've taken these values that your parents sacrificed so much for and turned them into a way that's more adaptable and more inclusive. Um, And I think that that's something that people struggle with when they talk about their values. And when we ask the question of like, did they come from your family or did they come from society? And for you, it's, it's, they came from both, right? They came from your uh, Vietnamese culture as well as your parents. But you said, this isn't inclusive enough for me. I respect you as my parents, but I also respect myself and I respect my community and I respect the people I work with. And I just think it's so beautiful that it's so clear to see in your journey that maturity and that growth within the value realm. Yeah, because one of the things that we talked about very early on was do values change? Yeah. And um, in this instance, I, I don't know that they changed, but maybe some come forward mm. and others recede, right? Yeah. I definitely feel like some of my <laughs> values have developed into something, I guess, more defined. Mm-hmm. I also just have this image of, you know, you as a little girl and you as a human being, as a person, as an individual, wasn't important. And I think, Rachel, you sort of said that. And um, and then I think of American culture where individualism is so highly valued, right? And I was thinking, gosh, you know, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, right? I mean, you can have respect for your family. You can value where you came from and be so grateful that your parents sacrificed this much for you. And at the same time, value yourself as a person without disrespecting others and still being um, having your community be important. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I, it's, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, um, I guess, like from my perspective, the difference in when I see like a sense of community amongst like Asian Americans, and then when I see the individualism of Americans Mm -hmm. and how there's, there's a huge, huge like gap between how people um, act and what their choices are, depending on if 
they just focus on the individualistic side versus when people come together as a community. I think like, I mean, first example that comes to mind is how people have been acting since COVID, right? Like if you look at other countries, I mean, unfortunately the USA's numbers in COVID have been astronomical. They're Every, but it's because some people believe in protecting others and wearing a mask while some people are like, well, I want my freedom to do whatever I want. I'm an individual. You can't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that mindset that is why we are where we are. Whereas other countries, if you look at like, I think like Taiwan had their very first month was they did have um, high COVID numbers. And then within the first month after everyone realized like you need to wear masks, you need to do this for the community, their numbers were zero. And then their country opened up again early on. I think that's, it shows case in point, like the the community and the respect for others aspect versus like, I'm an individual. It's, I do what I want kind of thing. I feel like that's how it is. Right. Right. And, you know, I will say for myself anyway, I just wish that there was some middle ground that it's not all, you must do this for your family. You must be respectful. And it's not all, uh, I'm Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, my daughter has the best Karen imitation. I'll have to show it to you. Anyway. Yeah, you will. Yeah, I'd like to see that. It's hysterical. I am curious. Any of your brothers, doctors, or lawyers? No. Um, Oh. Yeah. (laughs) But I am the golden child. They'll let you know. I was. But um, no, they are not. Two of them are entrepreneurs, which in our culture is like, you're doing what now? Yeah, you're doing nothing. (laughs) You're pretty much doing nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So that was difficult for my parents I think like learning that I mean I I have a friend who um he is an Asian American his parents are Vietnamese also and he went to law school did law and hated his life he actually is no longer a lawyer but has his law degree and is doing something different and I ask him all the time like how how did your your dad handle that and it's still like a thing. A so. topic that's not discussed at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I guess your dads would um, be open to it, it would be good to have a support group for dads whose children <laughs> have disappointed them. <laughs> I think um, they need to max out that number because there would be too many of them. There'd be too many. But wouldn't they also not go anyway? Because um, they don't not, acknowledge the fact right. that, that they're, yeah, they're disappointed. <laughs> now, a cultural Just to the child. Here, Just a to cultural the child. question here. Was it harder for your father to accept your choices being a woman versus your brothers being men? Um, I I guess my brothers may have a different answer for this, but I feel like <laughs> I took the the brunt of that. I yeah. um, it was definitely challenge more challenging. I think I think I got more disappointed talks, disappointed looks. Just, I mean, he still asks me if I'm going to be a doctor, right? I don't think he asks any of my brothers that. I think that ship has sailed and they, he's accepted that. But me, like, oh, so you're going to get your doctorate? Like, okay, sure. Let me, let's just revisit that. Let me go back to school for another. Is that part year. of the patriarchal thing? Like um, girls and women are supposed to do what the men tell them to do? Oh, uh, completely. I mean, it's, uh, unfortunately um Vietnamese culture is very codependent so Mm. the wife or the daughter you do whatever the oldest male or the father says you have like no voice um at least that's what I've learned I um it's very stereotypical that uh Asian women are like submissive and um that kind of stuff that's just just unfortunately for my parents we came to America and that is not me 
So, <laughs> so they sort of shot themselves in the foot trying to get yeah. to a better life. <laughs> well, it's funny yeah. you're talking about all this because I have this, these memories coming to my head of like, um, so I, I was raised by a Filipino woman and um, I was very involved in her family dynamic growing up. And I have, it's crazy, but I'm having like all of these images of her telling me that I'm not allowed to speak very loudly if we're at a party and the men are, you know, the men are talking and we were in the other room. And it was, it was interesting because I'm thinking about that now in your perspective of, of um, you know, that culture. And then something that flashed in my head is very similar to Jewish culture. And I was raised in a very conservative household and conservative um, group and similar in that men are the, the dominant and female are the submissive. Um, and there's really no point to me saying this other than I'm having these like flashbacks of throughout in my life of, of the cultural, um, the cultural impact of the patriarchy. You know, it's funny, as you mentioned that I, um, I went back to, I've gone back to Vietnam twice in my lifetime, like once when I was five. So I don't really remember much, but I remember it being like a third world country and all that. And then I went again after I graduated UCSD as an adult and, um, I, I have, I mean, I remember all the women in the family were in the kitchen cooking, doing their thing. And the men were just like lounging yep. in the front yard and, you know, drinking and eating and doing nothing. And I sat with the men because I'm not, that's sorry. That's not my role. <laughs> I, I, and I, I remember my cousins asking, like, you don't want to go into the kitchen? Like, no, why would I want to go into the kitchen? I'm enjoying myself out here. I don't want to cook and I'm fine. <laughs> and it was just like my he's like what yeah yeah well I think that plays so perfectly into honesty right it's it's honesty coming from this stereotype or this image of these women in your culture are not how you want to identify yourself you um don't seem like a particularly submissive kitchen woman <laughs> um and from what i'm gathered and i just think that that in my mind shows me another reason how you matured into your values and you reflected on what was shown to you in your culture and in your home and you saying i have to be honest with myself that's not who I am. And um, I just really respect that. I think that that's really, it's really inspiring to hear your story and how you've, you've chosen yourself over your family dynamic and, or the, the, not necessarily your family, family dynamic, but maybe the calmness that would have come if you had gone a different path. And you said, no, I'm going to choose the path that is better for me. And I'm sacrificing this to be that. And I, I just, I really respect that about you. I think that's, you're, you're wonderful to have on this, this podcast. Thank you. I'm also realizing we have a huge bias here on this program. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there is this idea of we value authenticity. We value the fact that um, you are able to stand up for yourself and that's a huge bias, right? Because there are those that would say, well, there is something to be said for the opposite that, yeah. right? Um, it's worked It's worked in all our culture for thousands of years. Why change it now? Um, and, you know, that's not just Asian culture either, right? I mean, we've got uh, the 
fundamentalist Christians wanting, uh, you know, the evangelists, whatever, I'm making a gross generalization, pissing people off, but the Orthodox Jews, the Orthodox Jews, you know, just women should know their place. Yeah. And um, so while it's still, you know, Americans can point to Asians and say, oh, they're still doing this. It's still happening here in this country as well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and I'm also just, so I was also struck Rachel, when you were saying, oh, you know, you're the Filipino woman who helped raise you and everything. She's like, now you need to be quiet. And I'm sure she was just like mortified because you are not quiet. And yeah. Jenny, you are not quiet. <laughs> I mean, both of you have very, you I was project. a unique, I was a unique <laughs> situation and they were yell at me because at that time I didn't like soy sauce. Now I love it. But at that time I didn't like soy sauce. And so my <laughs> rice would just have butter on it. And I, it was like, I committed a sin. Like, they, yeah, <laughs> that's how I ate my rice, but I didn't have a Filipino or Asian. Uh, well, I was, and I didn't like it. the way, I didn't like the way anything smelled and I was very picky and I was a picky eater anyway. And Mm-mm. it would just, that's already be, a sign of disrespect. Sorry. Yeah. Right there. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's the fact that I was not willing to eat any of their food. The only thing I was willing to eat, I was disrespectful. I was hundred percent in their culture, disrespectful because I ate rice with butter and that was it. And I was loud and I didn't put my dishes away and um yeah and, and it's you're not like, allowed at jenny's parents was, house yeah, was not. <laughs> you're picky no you you have no. to eat whatever they give you yeah also because they guilt you and they say <laughs> you know you have cousins in vietnam that are starving <laughs> and now i'm like if i eat the second plate what is that going to do for them they're not going to not starve <laughs> I said that once. Oh, that was, that, oh, was not, bad. that was not okay. That was bad. But also I, you just eat whatever they give you because yeah, that's you respectful. You just mm-hmm. eat it. And wow. you eat it until they stop giving it to you. So you just kind of keep going. It was, it was honestly like growing. I, so I called her mama um, because I didn't know her, 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 couldn't pronounce her name and her name was Thelma, but I just couldn't pronounce it. And um, so I called her mama and honestly, it was so interesting coming from kind of what you talked about, Dina, coming from a a predominantly, well, white, not predominantly, all white Jewish upper class community. And then I chose most of the time to participate in my Filipino mother's culture and family dynamic. Mm. Um, And it was interesting to me how that kind of, I chose actually to assimilate more toward those 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 values at an earlier age than I did my own family's values, and I'm thinking Except about it. you were still a picky eater, and I was still a picky ate eater. rice with butter. Yes, I still ate rice with butter, and later on, though, I did. And we're loud. Um, yeah, I was always loud. I did start. I'm loud too. The soy sauce with the butter, and that was more acceptable. But butter is like a very American thing. Yeah, I I don't even know if I've ever had butter with rice. That just it's that good. that concept blows my mind. It's good. Oh my god, that's how I make my rice. Right. I mean, I, I love soy sauce on it too. But I have um, a question, and um, we can cut it out of the <laughs> podcast if you don't want to answer it. But are your parents? I'm happy? honest. Remember, are your parents happy? With each other or with themselves? Or with what? the life that they have lived aligned with their values. Yeah, so actually it's funny. Um, in junior year, I remember this. So this is when I realized my father is disappointed in his life. Um, mm. In junior year, we learned about the American dream, right? We learned about that mm. in like history or English or whatever. And our project was to ask your parents what they thought was the American dream and if they are fulfilling it. And we had to write an essay about it. So I asked my parents 
like I actually did it right I think my brother just like made something up because I asked <laughs> them about it and they're like I don't know what I don't know what their dream is like, okay so for me I wanted to connect with my parents I wanted to know if they felt like they are living the American dream and for my mom maybe like stereotypical mother or like and, but she was like I mean, my American dream was to, you know, get married, raise my kids, let my kids be happy and healthy and educated and, you know, pursuing what they want to do. Um, also pursuing what they want to do is also American, not Asian at all. Right. And so um, when I asked my father, his American dream was to come to America and be rich. Mm. And his idea of being rich was not where he was or is. And so he was not living the American dream. He wanted to, he thought coming to America, he would have an easier life, which, you know, I don't think the life is easier here. You, I mean, in America, you learn to work hard, right? You learn to work until you retire and you're working how many hours a day? Like, and he, you know, worked in a landscaping business. It wasn't easy. It wasn't like he had an easy job where he just like sat at a desk. It was laborious. And so for him, he was never going to be rich working a landscaping job. He came to America as working hard just to feed his kids. And um, for him, it wasn't an American dream. And I realized then my father was not happy with his life. And I, I mean, I think in being honest with himself, I think if he pursued things that he enjoyed, maybe he would be happy. But I, I don't think that that's where he's at. Um, I think it takes a lot of self-reflection and understanding of your emotions and where you are in life to be happy. I mean, and I just don't know if that's where he is. So that's that's hard. I, I mean, I wish him well. I wish he would think about those things. But even if I approach the topic, it, it's like taboo. It's still taboo. Talking about emotions is, I mean, even now as an adult, I got upset, like, sad over a topic and he's like why are you sad don't be sad like telling me not to have this emotion I'm like I can't I can't help how I feel like you're invalidating my feelings <laughs> which yeah. is already hard um and so I think like I think I don't think he understands those emotions right because you never address that how can you really work through them okay. instead of ignoring them and I think like the self-awareness of recognizing that that's the emotion and then just moving through it is is important and I think that hinders him and his happiness. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I'm going to go back to being biased here because I, I, I wonder if your father would feel that way. Right. So our bias is toward allowing the emotion, moving through the emotion and your father and Vietnamese culture, it sounds like, I mean, he's doing what he needs to do. Right. So his bias is I'm doing what's right for me, Mm -hmm. even if you don't like it. Yeah, right. His role, he's, he's, his role as being the father, the head of the household, he's doing it, you know, that's, and and how he feels is immaterial. Yes. So, yeah. So even though I, I know he's not happy and mm-hmm. he just, just probably just doesn't, he doesn't see it at, as mattering. Yeah. Well, I think you said something so, so key for our listeners right there is the only way to really assess if you're happy is to reflect on what your values are and what are your personal identity values separate from cultural, societal, educational values. And that's hard. That's hard. You know, like I think, um, I was talking about you need Brene Brown for that stuff, man. Can we just all sit there and just have, (laughs) well, it's funny because I had a conversation with somebody today about, um, 
emotions and, and facing traumas or facing major conflicts throughout your life force upon self-reflection for a lot of people. But it also does the complete opposite of because I experienced this and your father and your mother came to my mind of really leaving their country, leaving their family behind, leaving it all behind, and therefore refusing the self-reflection on what that reflection would bring. You know, you talk about family being a core value and they left their family. And so mm. I think it really puts into perspective you can have these experiences and they generate self-reflection. You can have these experiences and it's going to push you farther and farther away from self-reflection because I guarantee if you sat down and said to your dad, hey, your value is family, but let you left your entire family behind, that's going to show unalignment and, and truth that he's not happy. Um, and so I think that that's just really key is that, is that self-reflection. And, and yes, we have probably biased listeners because our listeners like what we talk about and like this. Well, know, hopefully. Underdog. Yeah, right. It's like <laughs> I mean, underdog mentality of like rebelling against what's, you know, your upbringing and coming into your own. And if we can, if we can stop and our, a lot of our guests have thought of the power of pause. And for you, it came in college. It came from distancing yourself from your day-to-day -day life and, and taking that power of pause and bringing that self-reflection. Um, and I think that that's so valuable for our listeners is, is to hear you say, this came about because I was able to reflect and be honest with myself. I mean, I think it's important to consider like emotional intelligence. Like, you know, everyone knows like IQ and whatever and all that stuff, but emotional intelligence is so important. And that's something that you can actually improve your score on. Yes. There's actually like an uh, EQ score that you can have. And for me, I think like the self-awareness was because I never accepted my emotions growing up and I never acknowledged them, my self-awareness score was so low. Whereas like my relationship strategies and scores were higher, right? Like my um, societal relationships and how I can communicate with other people and whether I recognize how other people feel and all that kind of stuff was, was better, right? Because I take into consideration like my parents or the respect of like um, the community. So that part for me, I was easy, but then thinking of like the self-awareness was so hard initially because I'm like oh I, I am experiencing these emotions and that's okay and so like reflecting back on that is was a journey I guess. Could you tell our listeners where you could possibly find uh, a website that would uh, get somebody their scores? <laughs> she's I showing a book, yeah, showing <laughs> a book. I, I have a book it's called <laughs> emotional intelligence I think you um they have a, an emotional intelligence test and I'm wondering if you can find it's just like uh, if you google emotional intelligence test if you could pull one up oh I'm sure I know you I, could I'm sure I did sure. take the test and they're um it's it's really interesting actually and there's like four different categories of emotional intelligence and the reason why I bring up the self-awareness one is because that was my lowest score of the four categories. And then they have self-management strategies, social awareness strategies, and then relationship management. So there's, there's like four core tent skills within emotional intelligence. I know what I'm going to do after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you know, some people, am I lacking? You would think, I mean, some people think that uh, it's, it's interesting to see because some people think they score higher than they did or some people got a really low score or, you know, vice versa. And so I think it's just, it's good. Um, self-awareness. Self yeah. <laughs> yeah, self yeah. Yes, exactly. 
it sounds to me like you're still on your journey. Um, and I do believe that, you know, self-awareness is a lifelong journey. It's not something, it's certainly no destination, right? You never, are we ever truly self-actualized? Probably not. But I'm also reminded and and want to say too, and, and I don't know why this is just at the forefront of my mind right now, is that even as we develop ourselves, there's still, I think, a responsibility to uh, develop with other pe- our, our relationships with other people, right? Because I think we do have that responsibility toward community. And the last couple of weeks, that's just felt, I felt very strongly about that. And that has absolutely no pertinence to our discussion necessarily, but I just no, it, I mean, it does, you know, one of the four parts of emotional intelligence is your social awareness, your relationship management. It's not just you and yourself and how you feel. It's like how you interpret other, how other people feel and how you manage the relationship between you and another person. Right. Yep. So I, I, I definitely think, think I also think too, with specifically community, um, and I think we can, I can speak for all three of us on this call. Uh, there is a lot of, um, issues within our community and our culture and our religion that prevented us from to stray and to lose a little bit of respect. Um, And I think with this self-realization, being honest with ourselves and growing into values, it comes relearning what it means to be in relationship with your community and your religion. Mm. And I love what you said, yeah, I love what you said about like, this is continual self-reflection, self-growth, self-empathy, self-acceptance, all of that is continual growth. And I think what I've learned in my journey is that came before I could even think about reflecting on my community and my attachment and in my circumstance, the boundaries that I set with my community and my religion. Um, and so I think I love the most, this, this, I'm telling you this emotional intelligence test is going to be my thing for the rest. I don't want to make my husband take it too. I already know that that's probably going to be my lowest score. What's is, that? Is the community and the relations. Um, is the relationship, <laughs> the relationship, what is it? Can you remit? Re- re- relationship re- management, I relationship think is the one management. that you're talking about. That uh-huh. one actually is the most complicated of the four. So when you, when you break down um, each of the skills, if you wanted to work on one. Uh, so for me, I wanted to work on self-awareness because I knew that that was my problem. Um, they say uh, to work on, you know, whatever your lowest score is, but save relationship management for the end, because of course you need to have social self-awareness before yeah. you even consider the relationship yeah. management, which is yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that that's, it's, I needed to, for me, um, talking about your, your value of honesty, I needed to, I still continue to um, reflect on what's mine and what's others. And for COVID really, really sparked that for me because my husband and I were talking about it last night when COVID first broke out, I was terrified to go to the grocery store and um, literally afraid to do anything. And it took me a while to identify that that was actually not so much my anxiety as much it was the community that I was around or the community that I was influenced by. And my, my point is in this is in order to identify your own values aside from your community, that's where that honesty piece comes in. That's where you kind of have to say, okay, this is what I've been a hodgepodge of for my whole life up until this point. And now I have to do this work of identifying what's mine, even before I can start to identify what others have. 
just some some I love in this podcast how things always come overlay. together. Yeah, they always come together. They all, always overlay with conversations that I'm having um, in my day-to-day life. And they always seem to come up in these, like serendipitously into these conversations that we have on this podcast. And so I just I always get so excited. I, I always feel like I learn a lot. And my husband will tell you, sometimes I come into these and I'm like, oh, we got, we got this podcast today and it's going to take a lot of brain power. And um, I always leave feeling like my cup has been refilled. And I think that that's such a hard thing to do in the line of work that we're all in, where we are of service a lot and impactful conversations can be really taxing. And I feel like the podcast conversations that we have always refill me. Um, People like you, your story really just makes me take a moment of gratitude and um, feel energized. And I just think that's so surprising for me at 340 when I'm like getting ready for bed. I just want to comment on the fact that you said that, you know, we're refilling your cup, which I think is great as people who, you know, work in the service of others, uh, you can't pour from an empty cup. So I think that's really great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank Dina for that a lot because Dina's one of those people that keeps refilling my cup a lot. And she, (laughs) she hates when I talk gushy, but uh, it's true. And I think that it's, it's conversations like this. And I, I, I say it every single podcast that, the impact that women like you have in my life right now is so profound in my growth and my career and how I show up as a wife, as a mother, as a, well, I'm not a mother yet, but future, uh, as, as a wife, as a mother, as a p- business partner, as a facilitator, your story and the stories of our other guests are changing the way I interact with the world. And I'm just so in awe of that in, in this space, so. And I think that's great because remember we were talking about how like we it's your community that you're going from. Yeah. Like remember it was mine. It initially started as just my family, but then it's yeah. the people I surround myself with. Yeah. And that is what influences who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So Jenny, final thoughts here. What would you say is your secret ingredient to your wellness pie as it stands right now? <laughs> I knew I this wish- question was coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and- I wish the listeners could see your face. I'm going to. <laughs> really concentrated face. I knew this question was coming because I've heard it multiple times. And then I think when I initially thought of it, I was like, well, for me, for sure, like honesty, right? Like that's like tr- truth is my thing. But then I, I thought about like what really makes me, me. And it's, I don't know if I can pinpoint one thing, like, right. I think about the whole body, the whole person. And how can I just pick one aspect of me? Like it's, it's more than just one, one thing. It's, it's, me as a whole person, everything about me. So I don't know the answer. <laughs> no, but I think you just you just gave the answer because yes. we it's all of you. Lot, yeah, we talk a lot about you know the the, the pillars of wellness and self care in that in that framework. And Dina, you said it, and I'll never it'll never leave my brain the way that you said it. And it's you know if your physical if your physical pillar of wellness is depleted and you sit in the bathtub with a glass of red wine, that's not going to refill that cup that's not going to refuel you and I think that what you're saying what I'm hearing and what our listeners are hopefully hearing is it's about stepping back and looking at all of you and being able to reflect on what areas of your whole body need it because you're right it's not just one thing it is a surplus of things that you might need to keep you not only afloat but like you know swimming I just keep going back to those bottles. <laughs> it's a trend. It's going to be a podcast prop now. 
I just, I kind of do. I want to get some decorative bottles. And Jenny, if you don't know what we're talking about, the last couple of podcasts, I've wanted to bottle the things that people have said. I want to bottle kindness. I want to bottle compassion. I want to bottle emotional intelligence and be able to just pull it out and say, drink from this. <laughs> You'll feel better. <laughs> That's just an image and a metaphor in my brain. And I, and I really think some pretty little bottles on my shelf or something <laughs> Keep me reminded of that. No, I think that'd be great. Cause I think that, yeah, like, I mean, like, yes, some people focus on compassion, some people focus on kindness, but I think like for me, because I didn't accept like me as a person, I couldn't think of myself as a whole being. I, I think like that whole body, whole health aspect for me is a huge thing. And I, I mean, that's something that I work on with my patients every day. You know, I tell them like, just because you have a physical ailment, there's other aspects that are being hindered because of your physical ailment, Absolutely. right? Like, so let's say you have an amputation and you're dealing with the loss of a leg, but how is that affecting you mentally? How is that affecting you in your environment? How is that affecting you as say, if you're a husband or a father or a caretaker, like how does that impact you psychosocially? There's so many other impacts of that one small aspect of your life, but it's impacting your life as a whole. E, having you on here is really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just like, you have me reflecting now on like, you know, they, they, they talk about, um, I was one of the kids that was in the nurse's office all the time, all the time for stomach pain. And it wasn't until I was like 25. So like two years ago, that I realized that it's anxiety. It is a mental issue that is coming out physically and it was the first time that I put the two and two together. And so I love what you talked about right there. It's just like, there's, your body is one whole thing. Your, your brain is inside your body. Therefore it's connected. And there are, um, I've been learning a lot about meridians and, and energy pathways through the body. And it, it aligns so well with what you're saying is, is everything is interconnected. Whether you think it is or not, you could have a toe pain and it's really because you're not seeing as great as your left eye as you want to be. Um, and that's, I don't even know if that connects, but in, <laughs> in that span, in that span, that's what um, I'm picturing. It is this whole body approach of just to stop and reflect on, is this headache that I have an actual headache or is it because I've had anxiety all day? Or is it the shoulder pain that I have? Is it affecting my mental capacity because I can't feed my horses? you know, and I can't take that time for myself. So I, I think what you're saying is so key in keeping yourself going forward, because you have to take that time to reflect on the, the connectedness of your body and the connectedness of your spirit and your mind um, in order to live a full life. Otherwise you're, you're, you're not living a full life. And I'd like to make a pitch for the environment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I, when you're talking about energy, you know, remembering that we're, we're, we're pulling in energy from our environment and we're giving out energy to our environment as well. And it's not just humans, but it's our animals. It's our, you know, the living, breathing plants and everything around us. And, you know, that too can affect us. And that is a topic, a big topic I would love to talk about sometime, <laughs> but we're not going to get into that today, but just that's my pitch for the environment. Again, the connectedness of all of this is until I became more aware of my whole body as, as one whole thing, I wasn't even capable of thinking about sustainability in the planet because mm -hmm. I think what the whole, the idea of wholeness within yourself allows you to then think about, oh, well, how am I impacting as a whole outside of me? And so I think that 
another key thing is is kind of what you said is this this whole person mentality is just a stepping stone and to think more about your community and to think more about the people you surround yourself and your impact and your advocacy and, and all of that stuff. And so I, again, want to reiterate how key I think what you just said was for myself and our listeners. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for being here with us today. I mean, this is great. I feel like we could sit here and talk all day long because yeah. there are so many other things to discuss, but I am aware of everyone's time. <laughs> well, thank you for having me and listening to my story and being open about my experiences and, you know, validating that I had feelings and I'm a person and <laughs> it's refreshing. Unfortunately, it's not something that I usually experience, but it's, it's nice to know that there is a community of people out there that do respect that. Absolutely. Yes. And we're always here to validate you whenever you need it. Yeah. We're always here. Thank you so much, Jenny. I really, again, learned a lot and I, um, I'm going to be processing a lot of my own experiences and how I'm starting to remember some things that I are coming to surface after the things that you mentioned. And so I'm just really appreciative of that. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm glad. Happy to be here and happy to share all that with you. All right. Well, thank you. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. I appreciate this particular podcast so much because I love getting that other, another side of values when it comes to culture. Yes. Because yes. that's something I, I pretend I know something about, right? Because I've read it in books, but I, but hearing it from other people is, um, I love it. I love to learn. I feel like a sponge and yeah, absolutely. I just want more of that. Um, that it was just easy to to relate to our story, even though we are drastically different um, in our upbringing and mm-hmm. our culture. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by other cultures and how differently people are raised. And yet our circles continue to orbit around one another, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. This was great. And I think we're just going to keep having more and more guests on that are interesting and that we learn from. And Rachel, thank you so much for being here and doing this with me. I love it. I, yeah, I mean, I think the same thing and I wouldn't have done it without you. And I am just so grateful for the space that we've created and that our speakers have created because this is authentic. This is a real conversation. Mm-hmm. I loved that Jenny wasn't prepared. You know, it's a real conversation and, and that's what, that's what makes these impactful. And so I'm just really appreciative of that. And I'm excited to continue on this journey and and keep learning and growing. So thank you. And thank you so much. And, and for all our listeners, please, you know, we check out our Facebook page, give us some suggestions on who you think that we should have on as guests, even if it's yourself, because we want to (laughs) know. So thank you. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.